0: Hello and welcome to the Domino Universe. Episode 4. Ah, Yeah, I'm Curtis. I'm Jesse. And today we're going to be talking about a video I did about genetics and talking about our own personal genetics. Yeah. It's going to be a wild historic ride. Um, Goes back along. We're going to start the story back 4 million years ago when, uh, no I'm kidding, that would take a long time
1: the origin of genes in <laughs> yeah. the first place
0: yeah okay oh yeah let's go right back three point how how actually old oh, I should know this from the domino universe-hmm how old is life on earth so life earth is 4.5 billion years I want to say life is 3.8 billion years
1: that's not it's three point something
0: yeah it's really, definitely really three point old something Genes have yeah. been around a long time yep and still most people don't understand them yeah. That's why we're here today. <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah. Well segued.
0: All right. So I originally started to make a video about genetics. Uh, it was my third like big project video I've ever made. And the plan was to make it about my personal genetics and my family's genetics, because we had all done 23andMe, which we'll talk about later in this episode. But it's, for those of you new to it, I don't know, maybe you should say, because... Sure. Yeah, I have done it
1: as well. So 23andMe is one of a set of companies that will give you your your personal genomic profile, which is different from your entire set of, of DNA. Um, so 23andMe will look at a, a very small subset of your, your genome um, and tell you some interesting traits. like What kind of earwax do you have? What kind of tolerance to alcohol do you have? They will tell you a bunch of ancestry information. What what ethnic groups do you share certain genes with? Uh, it's sort of interesting how they get that data. Uh, a lot of you know you, you can't just read out of the genome where in the world you came from. So it's a lot of relational stuff. Uh, and then they'll also tell you some some pretty heavy duty health uh, information as yeah. well.
0: Yeah. So. Thank you. That was great.
1: Yeah, and you spit you spit in a cup and you mail the spit to them and they do science to it and then send you back a, an online report,
0: which is great because usually when I spit in a cup and send it to someone, they're not happy about it. No, but uh, yeah, you can actually pay for this service. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's it's a it's a real legit thing. Um, yeah, so we'll talk more about this in detail, but what I want to say for now is that when I started to make this video, I was going to use all of my ancestry information and all of my genetic information and my siblings' genetic information and my parents' genetic information and my grandparents' genetic information because we had all done these assessments. And uh turns out that, like, that was the first step in making a cake, mm. um, which I think is like, I mean, Car- Carl Sagan, one of my fav- favorite communicators said that if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe and like that's hilarious but apparently for these videos if i wish to make a cake from scratch i gotta like analyze my entire family's genetic information yeah and then like not even mention it in the video
1: yeah right yeah i bet that happens a lot how often do you start with one idea for a video and it turns into something completely different
0: i would say about a third of the time okay and a lot of those projects don't end up getting done at all okay um and then, yeah, and then a lot of the time it completely transforms and there's some weird quirks in the video and it's like, why? You know, yeah. you, like, I, I, like, oh, I had to cut out this. I had this weird segment in this video we're about to talk about mm. where I like talked about how I know specifically about how much Neanderthal I am. Mm-hmm. And then in, like it comes out of nowhere, but it's like, mm-hmm. no, but. I spent like a whole month on that one segment that I'm about to cut out. I don't want to cut it, but you have to cut it out, right? Yep. It doesn't make narrative sense.
1: Yeah. Kill, anyway. kill your darlings.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kill your darlings. Uh, so for the project we're talking about, it is genetics is a piece of cake. And the, in the video, in the project I work on, worked on, uh, as always, YouTube link in the video description or in the podcast description, if you haven't, You know I'm a YouTuber when I say, like, (laughs) automatically it's in the video description.
1: I'm assuming anyone listening to this is already
0: subscribing to your channel. But that might not be true. Might not be true. And also, no one's seen this video. Okay. It only, as I'm recording this, at least has 12,000 views, which is a small number for my channel. Um, But what I did, for those of you that haven't seen it or those of you that need a refresher, is I wanted to make a video about how genes work because a lot of people know that they have this code, this alphabet in their genome or in their, in their cells that tells their body how to make things and what to do. And that's the code that makes them up. But it turns out like very few people know how that code gets transcribed and translated into actual living people Mm -hmm. and plants and everything alive. So I wanted to make a a video about how to turn code into stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the video is using a genetic recipe to make a cake, and the analogy or the metaphor there is that the code is, our genetic code is like a recipe, and each of those ingredients that it codes for is like an amino acid, and when you put all those amino acids together in the right order, and you follow the right instructions, you end up with a protein, or in my case, a cake. Turns out that this is like the number one worst way to make a cake. (laughs) If you want to make a cake with 418 steps over the course of two hours of just mixing the ingredients, this is the way to do it though. So, um, so I made this, went through this whole process to make this cake, to make a video about how we, what, what, and I don't even mention it in the video, but this is transcription and translation of genes Mm -hmm. into proteins. Um, Turns out the cake was good.
1: Yeah, it's it's that sounded like a genuine reaction in the I video. Was,
0: I was so shocked. Yeah. yeah, I've never made a cake before. Okay, uh, as you can probably tell, if you look and looked in the video, you see my oven, and it looks like a disaster war zone. <laughs> um, I don't bake things, but it was actually like a pretty good vegan cake. Nice. Also, it's pretty hard to find a recipe for a cake that has twenty one ingredients.
1: Oh, you found specifically. 21 because of the amino acids exactly okay yeah
0: because there's 21 amino acids and i wanted to make a cake as i wanted to use a gene sequence that was as similar as possible to something that we'd really find yeah um i don't think we need to go in the details of how transcription and translation works i don't know
1: uh well i certainly can't go into detail about it so (laughs) i'm happy to just leave it with with the video
0: go look up on wikipedia yeah fair enough yeah um the basic, like the very, very basics is there's codons. Mm-hmm. um, so there's three base pairs, and each of those codes for a specific amino acid. Because of maths, there's redundancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, turns out that it's like really complicated, and it happens super quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, every one of your cells is going through this really complicated process. That for me, so it took me two hours to mix the ingredients to make a a tiny little protein cake. And that process in your body is happening like 300 times faster. Mm. And that's wild to me. Was
1: your cake, how many instructions did you say it was? 418. 418. Is that approximately what a protein's length is, like in terms of that many amino
0: acids make up your average protein? So my first idea for this well it was my brother's idea to do the cake thing Mm. he's a genetics researcher and genius so that's he comes up with a lot of good ideas but anyway um that was my first thought i was like i'm going to actually use a use a protein that i that is known and make a cake recipe out of it okay but even the smallest protein is way bigger than that okay um and like I did the math, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be mixing ingredients for three days. Mm. This is going to – that's not going to be any fun.
1: This is before the Domino Universe video, so like a (laughs) three-day-long repetitive process. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't familiar to you at this point. it was
0: not. It was starting to be. I had done – the Domino Universe was just a couple months before. Oh, I see. Okay. So it was just starting to – since we're a podcast that talks about timelines, (laughs) um, not that it's really relevant, but um, yeah – I was just starting to get familiar with this, but I mean, man, I've done so many more projects by now that are like Mm. way more repetitive than two hours of mixing a cake, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't know how this has become my life, but (laughs) no complaints really. Yeah. Um, yeah, but still 21 ingredients to make a cake is a lot. So I had like oil and it was like, well, I need, I need, I need four more ingredients. So I was like, okay, I'll use coconut oil, I'll use olive oil, I'll use canola oil, i mm-hmm. you know, like what kind of? It says milk. I'll use soy milk, I'll use almond milk, I'll use, and it like it is the most ridiculous recipe ever. And and it's
1: not like you put in two cups of flour. You were using the same size scoop for every single addition of ingredients. Yeah,
0: I was using a, I think, an eighth of a teaspoon. Oh wow, I didn't even
1: realize it was, yeah, it was that was small,
0: tiny. Yeah, and so I had like 418 scoops of. It was. It might've been a quarter of a teaspoon, okay. but it was, I was like, okay, I'm going to use the teaspoon, um, that is the amount of salt that I need. So I only had one, one sure. scoop of salt okay. and everything else add, oh man, like hundreds of scoops of flour, mostly, <laughs> mostly flour. I was so tired of scooping flour. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, also it took, it didn't take long just cause I had to scoop them, but the way genes work is that. There might be like AUC to code for white flour, mm-hmm. and there also might be AUG to code for flour, mm-hmm. and there might be like, you know, there's a bunch of different codons that say the same thing. Yeah. So every time, I didn't just have to like see white flour and scoop it. Mm-hmm. I like went to the ingredient lit or went to the the genes, saw the thing, found the you know went to the. Went to the table, found out what it coded for, and then found the thing in my table of 21 ingredients and scooped it once.
1: Yeah, doing the manual lookup every, every Every single time.
0: time, then on to the next one. Um, so, yeah, don't recommend the cake recipe. But it is in the video description if you have uh, – <laughs> if you some reason for some reason want to do that um, – but yeah, in terms of it being a, gen- a metaphor for time, for metaphor for time, thinking too much about the dominant universe, a metaphor for genetics, I think there's, I think it's a great idea. Again, not mine, so I feel fine about saying that. Yeah,
1: um, it's better than a like a a you know your genome is a blueprint or a computer code or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree that the uh, baking a recipe, um, you know, a cake is much more than just a pile of ingredients in the same way that a, a constructed body is much more than just uh, – like you can't look at someone's DNA and and know how tall they will be or exactly what shape all of their features will be. Yeah. It's sort of a product of those ingredients mixing together and being subjected to environmental forces like being baked in an oven and, and mixed into a cake.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: And similarly, the recipe doesn't tell you – what the edges, you know, what the perimeter of the cake will be, or where all of the little bubbles of gas will form. It's all sort of a, it's a, a
0: process. Yeah. More than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, like, there's also so many, there's so many metaphors that I could have gotten into that I didn't. Mm. Um, they just, like, lend lend themselves really well to cake. Mm. Um, like... One thing that I, that I did really quickly in the video, it's like five seconds in the video, but is the entire process of transcription, Mm -hmm. which is like, basically when we have genes, we have this recipe in our genome that we like basically photocopy and takes like a negative of. So all the, all the base codons get flipped over into RNA and then that gets used. And there's um, instead of A, T, C, and G, it's A, U, C, and G. Anyways, that's like the, in the video, that's like a five second clip. I just like photocopy it and it changes and no one really noticed, but I feel like that worked well. And I also think that those things like you pass on recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, recipes evolve over time. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would love to do if I was still a school teacher is to make cupcakes with a class and get each of them to make a like modification to their own little cupcake Yeah, and then get the students to vote on like what cupcake is the tastiest mm-hmm. and then make that recipe again, but get kids to modify it mm-hmm. and then get them to vote. I'm not going to mm-hmm. repeat this forever, but you could go on forever <laughs> yep. like that, right? Until you yep. get the best cupcake ever designed by preschoolers.
1: Yeah. I was going to talk about that because you mentioned in the video that recipes are passed down recipes evolve and... And they do, but there are ways that you could adjust that process to make it much more like genetic evolution. And, a, boy, that would be a time-consuming, difficult project to do. That would be super interesting to actually genetically evolve a, a cake or cupcake recipe.
0: I wonder if there's – I mean, I know that there are some very, very particular and – I don't know if I should use the word OCD, but – people that log absolutely everything about their cooking processes and their baking processes. And sure. I wonder if there is some sort of a database mm. of like genealogy of recipes. Sure. There's probably that probably exists somewhere. Yeah. 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 I bet you're right. Yeah. Cause I think that would be a fun project. Yeah. I wonder if that's a project I could do in a video somehow. It's like, here's this recipe. Evolve it and we'll do like a bunch of iterations or something. I don't know
1: how. I think what you would need to do. So a lot of the time, I think if you're following a recipe, the recipe is written and set and what you're actually doing might not match the recipe. Exactly. You might, oops, I splashed a little bit too much vanilla in. So there's your random variation. But then when you pass the recipe itself down, you're not necessarily capturing that extra little splash of vanilla. So this batch of, cookies cupcakes whatever might turn out to be a little better a little worse you've got this variation but the recipe remains a digital Mm. thing so you'd have to take the process of transcribing the recipe into the baked product but then also transcribing your process of adding each ingredient into a brand new copy of the recipe that would capture those little changes you're making so like You follow the instructions in the recipe, but then before you mix all your ingredients in the bowl, you then weigh them or measure them very precisely and see what did I actually do and copy that into a new recipe.
0: That would be really, really cool.
1: Yeah. It would take a long time, but you'd get evolution by natural selection actually happening. Through cake. Yeah. (laughs) That would be neat. I would love to do that. Do you know the story of the boats? The evolved, uh, yeah. the evolved boats. I can't remember where I read this. It was almost certainly in one of Richard Dawkins' books about biology and evolution. But he talks about this, and I, I'm going to forget a lot of details about it. So I'll, I'll be kind of general. But there's a a culture in a tropical island environment that has been building boats for, for many generations. It's a, like a largely fishing and, uh, and ocean based, uh, society. And the way they build their boats is by copying as close as they can, the boats that they have around them. And if they make a mistake and the boat doesn't work very well, then it crashes. It gets sunk by the, by the ocean or, or, uh, uh, you know, trapped on a reef or something like that and doesn't make it back. But the boats that are, Good and successful and strong, they make it back and they get copied. And you can see evidence over time of the boat structure actually evolving because of this natural process, undirected. Yes, there are people involved, but they aren't – they didn't come up with this process to evolve a boat. They were just copying the boats that were around them and it naturally evolved a better and better boat structure.
0: That's so cool.
1: It is. And it it matches, it matches so well what evolution actually does. And this is like a continuous process that's been going on for, you know, centuries at least. So there's a quite a good track record of, uh, of boats.
0: Many generations.
1: Yeah.
0: I feel like there's so many examples of that in like, this is one of the things that blows my mind when people don't believe in evolution. Mm. You see these processes that are happening culturally on a pretty short time scale. Mm-hmm. And it, like these boats. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how, like, this is so clearly a thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And like, if, if inheritance exists and you can see that by looking at your kids, mm-hmm. then you can, t- you can tell that like this must happen if you, if it has enough time, right? Yeah. Boats is fascinating because I actually had, I had an idea a long time ago might've been at the same time that I was doing this cake video actually, where I thought it'd be fun to make paper planes, Mm -hmm. but get a robot that made the planes and like just almost randomly folded paper and then like drop them off of a tower Mm -hmm. and then like go and find the one that went the furthest Mm -hmm. and like write down or find the code that I wrote on it. And Mm -hmm. then like, make a hundred paper planes again that were mm-hmm. just like that, but with minor modifications and mm-hmm. like over time evolve the paper plane. Yeah. Um, I think that'd be fun.
1: Yeah. That's, that's very doable.
0: Yeah. It's like your boat idea, but, um, easier.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You could get a machine to do
0: it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have to like start finding ways to get machines to do the repetitive tasks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you've got your, your plant watering yeah, taken yeah. care of.
0: Exactly. Yeah. One, one step, one step done. Yeah. Wild. That's cool. I haven't heard that story.
1: Evolution is such a great theory. I know that's not a controversial thing for me to say, but like biology is not my field. Um, But learning about how evolution works as an adult out of school was so kind of mind-blowing. Because it's so rare in science that you get a theory that it just – it's just true, you know what I mean? Like, even when we're talking about – on a previous episode, we talked about flat Earth theory. I'm pretty sure that the Earth is round. But, like, are there observations that could be made hypothetically in a fantasy world that, that, could, uh, that could contradict that? Sure, yeah. I mean, these are, these are observational theories. I'm not suggesting that that's a, a serious thing. But, like, philosophically, the theory of the round Earth could be worn away by new evidence but evolution works like a mathematical theory where it's it's almost necessarily true like you say if if you have a few simple pieces to start with like inheritance with variation and not everything survives to the point of of replicating you necessarily get evolution by natural selection there's no way around it
0: that's so amazing to me but yeah. absolutely i like when i did I went to a Catholic high school Okay. and they really didn't talk about evolution much because okay. back 10 years ago, 12, oh man, more than that. I'm old. Anyways, a, <laughs> lo- a long time ago when I was in high school, the Catholic church was like, I don't know about evolution as much, you know, and it was just not really addressed in my science classes. And I didn't discover, like really get the bones of the evolution theory until middle university and it just blew my mind away it was like wow yeah. now everything in the natural world makes sense yeah. you know and it's like this beautiful thing where it's like oh, i'm related to it and wow like you know i can track we can track this back and we can learn things about about what works, you know, like we can we can design windmills over off of the, the wings of birds or the the fins of fish because they've evolved and have had millions and or billions of years to perfect that. Yeah. And like that's fascinating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um and it's also neat because biology is one of the messier sciences. Yes. And this is such a like you say such a clear and simple foundation for it to be based on
1: yeah and there was no you know there's a famous quote in biology that without evolution nothing makes sense and with evolution everything makes sense it was the one linchpin piece that just set everything else right in place in like you say a very messy field a, a messy domain um with one theory yeah everything just kind of works
0: yeah it's everywhere i will You've you've been to the Beattie Biodiversity Museum in UBC, times. yeah, in Vancouver. Um, maybe my singular favorite thing there—they they have a giant whale skeleton mm. um, right at the entrance of the museum. And maybe my favorite thing about the entire museum is looking at where there used to be little legs. There's yeah. vestigial um, kind of like hips that att- would have that used to attach to legs because before whales were whales, they were land creatures that went. They came out of the water and then they were land creatures for a while and then they went back in the water and became whales. Mm. Um and it's mind blowing to me to be like, oh, of course like why do why would whales ever have leg bones yeah. without evolution? Yeah. And you see that now and it's like, wow, what a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, it's it really is incredible. Like there are lots of animals with vestigial organs, but whale leg bones in particular are just so incredibly useless. Yeah. Just bones floating in the middle of blubber, and like there's there's nothing there. They don't have little leg nubs. They just have the bones in the middle of their gigantic bodies.
0: Yeah, just efficient enough that, or, or not inefficient enough that they're they've evolved away. Yeah, like they still stuck around. Yeah, but like ridiculous enough that wow, why wow, it's a, it's remarkable. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, it's like an extra little half scoop of flour in your cake recipe that just it's been sticking around there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And in terms of recipes, I mean, in the video, I talk about how you look at a website for a recipe and like 90% of the website is, you know, here's an ad and here's how it tastes and here's some reviews and whatever. There's only a tiny amount that's the actual recipe. And our genetics is similar to that. Like a lot of it is stuff that we still don't have any idea what it does, if it does anything at all. Yeah. Um, When I made the video a year ago, people still referred to those genes as junk DNA. And that's changing a little bit Mm. but um because some of it has a purpose and so on but a lot of it is definitely just there because it hasn't hasn't been inefficient enough to be evolved away to be selected for Mm -hmm. um and it's fascinating to me if you look at our own our own genome is like mostly who knows what yeah um which is kind of kind of wild. Yeah. I wonder if so getting towards 23andMe, mm-hmm. which is how I started to make this cake, um, do you know if there's a, a thing on it in your results that say how much is like junk? I guess most of it most of our it's not even in 23andMe, that's yeah. our whole genome.
1: I think the the process that 23andMe is using, they're only looking at like so in your video you said that if you were to print out your your genetic code right. on sheets of paper. It would take 67-something filing cabinets to store it all, an enormous amount of space. And then you had uh, like a handful of paper, like the length of a book. You said, but this is just what makes each of us unique. Now, that's not the comparison between junk DNA and functional DNA. What you were saying there is that little book of paper is what makes one human different from a different human. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of DNA that's really functional and important, but all humans share exactly that DNA. So 23andMe is, first of all, only looking at that tiny little book worth that makes one person different from another. And even then, they're only looking at specific letters within that book that are associated with particular traits or, or ancestry. Yeah. They're called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. So it's it's individual places where one person's dna might be different from another's but they're not even looking at that whole set
0: thanks for the refresher you're welcome (laughs) much appreciated um yeah yeah oh man there's it's interesting that we can just simply go and somehow sequence what makes us genetically special yeah or unique yeah um I have like, so I've put a lot of thought into this and it's, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, it's like, wow, this is a remarkable technology and I can now know my own specific genes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, just like you said, I said, most of it is the same. Like yeah. It's, I'm 99.9 whatever percent similar to every other individual. Yeah. And it's odd to me that like we are, what I, what makes me feel weird about it now is like, I'm so self-absorbed that I care about that, like last little percentage point, right? <laughs> That's a really interesting point. Yeah. I I
1: think that 23andMe, and probably the other companies as well, although I know less about them. For 23andMe, I think they do a really good job of framing their data and giving you the an outline of like how much should you trust this what's the mm-hmm. science behind it how certain are we of all of these results but one thing they don't really emphasize is is that that like keep in mind we're looking at a tiny tiny fraction that makes us different the overwhelming majority is identical between one person to another
0: my brother mentioned that there is a website that gives you and I'll Try to find out what it is. I forget the name of it right now, but we'll put a link in the description. And it's a website that gives you your your genome without having to do the spit test. Okay. Um, and all that it does, it's it's only like ninety nine point nine nine percent accurate. Uh huh. But it just like it just gives you your human <laughs> genome, right? Yeah. Um, because like most of your genes are the same as everyone else's, right? Which is kind of. Like a little tongue in cheek, but also, yeah, I think kind of worth making a note on. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I
1: I actually uh, developed a process myself where I can I can give you a uh, a copy of your genome as well. It's not quite ready for market. It's only twenty five percent accurate. It's where uh, I, I, I fell asleep on the A key on my keyboard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, very very pump
1: I know you don't edit these, but you can, yeah. you can cut that right out. Yeah,
0: I wish. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, man. Still, even after making that cake, it's mind-blowing to me that we have all of this complexity of life with four letters. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know computers operate on two. They operate on zeros and ones, but still, like, wow. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's neat that they're
1: so similar, that, like, we've developed this way to, to make machines, computers, do things on a, a two-letter code. And biology, meanwhile, over the past few billion years, has, has settled on a four-letter code. But like, there's a lot of similarity there in, in, in this sort of like digitizing uh, instructions.
0: Definitely. That's neat. Maybe a future video. Mm, at some point. Cool. We'll see. Um, yeah. Okay. Getting back to 23andMe, yeah. our experiences, the reason that I didn't end up using all of that information in a video is because of privacy. Hmm. Partly because of my privacy, because if I start talking about, let's say, the report that I know for my likelihood to get Alzheimer's, then like maybe at some point that'll affect my life insurance in some country that I live in or something. It's yeah. not easy to know. But also because if I tell my results, then my living relatives will also have a, be able to do the math to figure out what their results for certain health risks are mm. because we share, I, you know, I share half of my DNA with, with my parents and so on. Um, that's tricky because it's something that like, it's a sort of privacy sharing that I can't control. Yeah. Or my siblings can't control. Yeah. And like, it's also a sort of privacy that we've never had to think about ever before. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about it when you did? Cause you, you're pretty open about your results.
1: Yeah, I, I am. And I, I made a decision to be so. Hmm. Um, it, it took a lot of thinking, but I, I felt – I don't want to get into all the details of it. But I felt that the benefits of of, sort of being open and honest and sharing this stuff outweighed the, the costs uh, for me personally. But it's a really difficult question. Like you say, I'm making that decision on behalf of all of my relatives. And the way that our laws work, they don't really have a say in that. And I I can't really imagine a set of, of laws that would allow them to have a say in it that would also respect my ability to you know what I mean? Like you, you sort of we think of individual people as being the unit of of our legal system in a lot of ways. Like I have autonomy over my own body and my own beliefs and what I say. But when it comes to genetics, it that's just not the way that it works. And I really don't – I don't know. I don't have an answer. Um, I've tried to deal with it as best as I can. And luckily, nothing – no disasters have come up yet. But uh, yeah, it's it's really tricky and I don't know what the right solution is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to genetics in general, I think that the issues that we are facing aren't issues of like health and safety but there are issues of like who owns the rights. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about in our next episode, we're going to be doing an episode on genetic modification mm. and like, we'll talk about that in more detail because those are tricky questions. And I think they're, they're the questions we're only starting to, to ask. Mm. Um, how much Neanderthal are you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head what the percentage is. And actually 23 and me changed at one point how they how they tell you about it. It used to be, I think it was 2.9%, but they stopped giving percentage because that I think that's just an oversimplification. Yeah. Um, but I know that you have looked up the report and have the actual numbers. I have
0: the numbers right on hand. I have 287 variants, which is basically saying how many, how much variation from what they've looked at is from Neanderthal genes? Mm. Because yes, we have Neanderthal genes in us, at least most Europeans do. Um, I have 287. You have right here. I've got 272. I'm more Neanderthal.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of a thorn in my side. I always took some pride in uh, in the fact that I was I was highly Neanderthal. I did the test with some coworkers at the time at a a, a different organization that I worked at, and uh, I was actually not the most Neanderthal out of the set of us that did it, but I was on the upper end, and it was a bit of a point of pride. <laughs> uh, there was someone else who who was just slightly more European than me, which is hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do. I was I had very few surprises in my ancestry re- report and I'm yeah. I'm as western northern european as as you can get. Uh but yeah, one of my one of my colleagues was slightly more neanderthal and turns out so are you.
0: Yeah, it's uh at first when I saw that I was like, oh, I don't want to be too neander too neanderthal. That's, you know, a bad thing. They're seen as these archaic cave people, but they were actually fairly smart. They were you know, they had a, we have a lot going for us. I think if there were one – if I
1: had a, a genie who could grant a single wish.
0: Don't tell me you're going to blow <sighs> it on more Neanderthal genes. No, no, no. I mean like <laughs>
1: – I don't know. This It's difficult to, to – there's a lot uh, wrapped up in this. But boy, it's – the fact that there's only one human species oh. – I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, I think the, I think it's very likely due to us Homo sapiens that there is only one human species yeah, alive. I think there's a
0: fair amount of evidence for that. But like, that we eradicated what,
1: them. What would the world look like if we had other groups of different species within our own genus? Which, within the animal kingdom. We're very much the exception, that we're we're sort of the solitary branch on the on the tree. You know, there's dogs and wolves and coyotes and foxes, and they're all fairly closely related. Just about every animal, there are many, many species within the genus. What would it be like? What would culture and society be like if we had Neanderthals around?
0: I have so many thoughts on that. Yeah. One is that I think that that's a bit of a homocentric viewpoint, too, because if you look at – apes you know like there's gorillas and there's chimpanzees and there's all these sorts of creatures that are very similar to us in yes. a big view yep. like if i said to a dog oh it's like a wolf it would be offended if it had the the language to, to think <laughs> so i think but then the other on the other hand i totally agree um and i mentioned this briefly in my marathon of human history video mm-hmm. which we'll talk about at some point because yeah for most of humankind there were many species and then really in the last blink of an eye they've all gone except for homo sapiens except for us and that's tragic i think
1: i'll say i i do think that you're right that we have other great apes that are are related to us but i think that they are further like they're not in our genus i forget what the next level down is is it
0: uh family is is next Next level oh the next level i think of it as up but yeah um there's a a few anyway yeah
1: I guess what I'm really getting at, like, even, even if there were cephalopods that had language and culture and, and could communicate with us more or less on a, on an intellectual equal ground, uh, even that would satisfy what I'm talking about. I, I guess it's not the fact that we are closely related to another species, but like, what if you had competing, not, well, okay. Anyway, I think you know what I mean. What if we had different species, distinct groups biologically that were sharing Societies. Yeah. I think
0: our entire culture would have evolved very differently. Yeah. I think like we would probably, and maybe this is just philosophy. This is, I have no, we have no data points to back this up, but I feel like we would be less opposed to one another and there'd be less racism and so on. If we were like, wow, people can be really different and yeah. we have to be accepting not just of people with different skin tones, but people with different, entirely different anatomies. Yeah. Right? Um, like different species, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes me sad. I feel like, you know, we lost a we lost a brother or a sister, yeah. you know? And that was our fault. Like we murdered
1: them. <laughs> sure, yeah. So when I say I wonder what the world would be like if we had multiple yeah. species of Homo, we did. And we know what happened. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know that there was an episode in Future Bang about de-extinction. Yeah. Um, I would love to have a chat about that at some point because it's possible— like ethical ramifications aside, but it's possible that we could eventually create another Neanderthal. Yeah. Which would be mind blowing. Yeah. Two quick things left before we finish. This is officially our longest podcast. Um, but we, in terms of talking about diversity, uh, we try to always recommend a pod or a, a, another podcast or a, a Twitter channel or a YouTube channel that you can check out. Um, Jesse has one today.
1: I do. Yeah, so I would like to point your attention towards Point Mutation, uh, who is a, a person on Twitter mainly, is, is how I know her, and she is into genetics and molecular bio, yeast and snark, beer and psychom. She's a researcher who, who studies genetics of yeast in particular. Uh, her Twitter handle is point underscore mutation, and uh, she's got some really interesting stuff to say about yeast, which are... I fascinating branch of life
0: yeah in terms of how do we know things about genes i mean that was a yeast was the very first thing we uh we found out the genome of yeah and uh yeah yeah great twitter profile as always we'll put it in the uh description in the podcast comments whatever feed thing go there to find and to follow her um and also follow us wherever you get your podcasts uh we are domino universe i'm curtis i'm jesse thanks so much for listening yeah